David is now on the run, and yet not without encouragement. This is the 34th sermon in the series Kingdom, Dynasty, and Glory, an exposition on the second book of Samuel. Our roll covenant reading coming from 2 Samuel in chapter 15, beginning in verse 13, beginning in verse 13 through the end of the chapter, verse 37. 13 through 37. Beloved of the Lord, this is the word of God unto us this morning as we read once again of Absalom's routing of David. By the inspiration of God, the scripture records. And there came a messenger to David saying, The hearts of the men of Israel are after Absalom. And David said unto all his servants that were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, for we shall not else escape from Absalom. Make speed to depart, lest he overtake us suddenly and bring evil upon us and smite the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servant said unto the king, Behold, thy servants are ready to do whatsoever my lord the king shall appoint. And the king went forth and all his household after him. And the king left ten women which were concubines to keep the house. And the king went forth and all the people after him and tarried in a place that was afar off. And all his servants passed on beside him, and all the Kerithites and the Pelethites and the Gittites, six hundred men which came after him from Gath, passed on before the king. And said the king to Ittai, the Gittite, Wherefore thou goest also with us? Return to thy place and abide with the king, for thou art the stranger and also an exile. Whereas thou camest but yesterday, should I this day make thee go up and down with us? Seeing I go, whither I may, return thou and take back thy brethren. Mercy, truth be with thee. And Ittai answered the king and said, As the Lord liveth, and as my lord the king liveth, surely in what place my lord the king shall be, whether in death or life, even there also will thy servant be. And David said to Ittai, Go and pass over. And Ittai the Gittite passed over and all his men, and all the little ones that were with him. And all the country wept with a loud voice, and all the people passed over. The king also himself passed over the brook Kidron, and all the people passed over toward the way of the wilderness. And lo, Zadok also, and all the Levites were with him, bearing the ark of the covenant of God, and they set down the ark of God. And Abathar went up until all the people had done passing out of the city. And the king said unto Zadok, Carry back the ark of God into the city. If I shall find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me again and show me both it and his habitation. But if he thus say, I have no delight in thee, behold, here am I. Let him do to me as seemeth good unto him. The king said unto Zadok the priest, Art not thou a seer? Return into the city in peace, and your two sons with you. Amahaz, thy son, and Jonathan, the son of Abathar. See, I will tarry in the plain of the wilderness until there come word from you to certify me. Zadok therefore and Abathar carried the ark of God again to Jerusalem, and they tarried there. And David went up by the ascent of Mount Olivet, and wept as he went up, and had his head covered, and he went barefoot. And all the people that was with him covered every man his head. They went up weeping as they went. And one told David, saying, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, I pray thee, turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. And it came to pass that when David was come to the top of the mount where he worshipped God, behold, 
Hushai, the Archite, came to meet him with his coat rent and earth upon his head, unto whom David said, If thou passest on with me, then thou shalt be a burden unto me. But if thou return to the city and say unto Absalom, I will be thy servant, O king, as I have been thy father's servant hitherto, so will I now be also thy servant. Then mayest thou for me defeat the counsel of Ahithophel. And hast that now there with thee Zadok and Abathar the priests? Therefore it shall be that what thing soever thou shalt hear out of the king's house, thou shalt tell it to Zadok and Abathar the priests. Behold, they have there with them their two sons, Ahamaz, Zadok's son, and Jonathan, Abathar's son, and by them ye shall send unto me everything that ye can hear. So Hushai, David's friend, came to the city, and Absalom came into Jerusalem. Matthew records the words of the Lord Jesus Christ to us in Matthew in chapter 10, verse 16. One verse only this morning for our new covenant reading. Verse 16. Notice the Lord begins with the word behold in order to pay very close attention. He uses the word and says, Behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be ye therefore wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Thus far as the reading of God's most holy, inerrant, and finally authoritative word, the grass withers, the flower thereof fades away, but the word of God stands forever. And by his holy word is the gospel of the kingdom declared unto us this day. David is now on the run. And yet, even though he is now in exile, on the run, he is not without some substantial encouragement. Because in his corner, he not only had his family, some of his faithful followers, and the entire tribe of Judah, but he also had those that were converted to the religion of Yahweh from the nation of, one would think, a nation, but not of the Philistines, and yet they were of the Philistines, of the arch enemy of Israel. He had support from those out of Philistia. Now note again the confession of Ittai from the nation of the Philistines. Verse 21. He answers the king and he says, As the Lord liveth and as my Lord the king liveth, surely in what place my Lord the king shall be, whether in death or in life, even there also will thy servant be. This was perhaps one of the most encouraging statements that the king could hear. I will stay with you, even though I'm a the Philistines, I'm converted to Yahweh. I will stay with you in life or in death. I don't care. I'm with you. I'm right by your side. So this man, in addition to the other tribes and those which totaled 600 men from Gath, a considerable army, they are now confederating with David in a life and death agreement. And that is how God works. Whenever our cause is just, whenever our cause is biblically sanctioned and agreeable to God, God sends reinforcements from places and from people that that you never even expect. In fact, just recently, I received telephone calls and letters and emails from people as far as Wisconsin, Michigan, New York, from our own community and other places as well encouraging us, praying for us, moving us forward, even when we think, as with David, that we too are now exiled in our own community. And so, as we engage in, in, in righteous causes for the glory of Christ, 
as we engage in righteous causes for the advancement of the kingdom of heaven and for the honor of His law, God supports us with tangible results. Real people, flesh and blood people, come to our aid. Now this knowledge, embraced and believed by faith, is what gives us the courage to wage a culture war against the rebels and the reprobates. So we are, we are called, that's our commission, we are called to advance the crown rights of King Jesus, not the crown rights of man, nor of the pedophiles, nor of the perverts, but we are called to, to bring forth upon the nation and press forth upon the nation and upon our community and upon the magistrates of our community the crown rights of Christ the King whenever and wherever His law and His honor is threatened. Not to do so is to violate our Christian oath. Okay, so you ask, what is our Christian oath? What does that even mean? Well, whenever an individual professes to be a Christian, he or she is saying before God and before the audience of the saints that they are a follower of Christ. That they are a follower of Christ. Christ's commission was to fulfill what Adam failed to fulfill, which was to subdue and take dominion over the world which was in now rebellion to God. So as the sovereign man of war of Exodus 15, and in his office as a Nazarite priest, his commission is to redeem that which was lost in Adam, which includes both men and nations. That is our commission as well. So if you're going to take upon yourself the identifying terminology, I'm a Christian, then you need to act like a Christian and do the things that Christians do. Note his declaration in Matthew 10, 34. He says, think not. In other words, don't be confused now. Change your thinking because I'm going to straighten it out. Think not that I am come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. I'm going to bring the word of God. I'm going to bring the law of God upon the world. And it's going to divide the sheep from the goats. In other words, he's going to unleash the sword of the Spirit, which is the power of the Word of God upon men and nations for their subjugation or for their destruction. As his body, the church, we are commissioned likewise. Nothing less will suffice and nothing less will be pleasing to God. Now, once David and his party of faithful followers are safely out of harm's way, at least momentarily, David sends Zadok and his sons back to the city of peace in Jerusalem with the ark in order to ensure that it is where it belongs in the temple of Yahweh. Notice in verse 29, Zadok, therefore, and Abathar carried the ark of God again to Jerusalem, and they tarried there. Now, on the surface, it seems as if David merely wants the ark to rest in its rightful place. But knowing the general David, the cunning David, there's more to it than, than just, I want the ark to be in its rightful place. There's more to this than meets the eye. As David is always thinking, scheming, strategizing, because that's what a leader does. He plans before he executes. He positions people in places that will be instrumental in his victory. Once the ark is successfully on its way back to Jerusalem, David then ascends to the Mount of Olives to weep and pray over the situation and to worship God. We see this in verse 30. And David went up by the ascent of Mount Olivet and wept as he went up and had his head covered. 
and he went barefoot, and all the people that was with him covered every man his head, and they went up weeping as they went up. So as a result of being exiled from the city of God, David and his elect company find themselves at the base of Mount Olive, the same place that Jesus would preach from decades later. But now you have to ask a question. Why would God bring David to this very spot while in his exile and in the depth of despair and sorrow? In other words, what is the significance of this place and for what purpose did David end up there? Now the real question is not so much what is happening historically, although that's very important, of course that's always important, but rather what is the gospel indication, what is the gospel message hidden in these historical events? Because nothing happens just by happenstance here, God is orchestrating all of this. So let's for a minute consider the significance of Mount Olivet. Now Mount Olivet was a lush mountain, a mountain top. It was full of olive trees. It was a place where olives could be gathered for food as well as a place for retire and prayer. It was a very special place of respite. The olive trees were essential. During those days, they were essential for making oil, which had a myriad of uses, one of which was for lighting the lamps, both in the temple and in private homes. So if you didn't have the olive oil, you couldn't light the lamps of the temple. You had to keep those lamps lit all the time. You had to be able to light lamps in your own homes. And it was for a purpose of light. So we bring light out of darkness, in other words. In Exodus 25 and 27, we read this. Exodus 25, 6, we read, oil for the light, spices for anointing oil, and for sweet incense. And in verse 20 of Exodus 27, and thou shalt command the children of Israel that they bring thee pure olive oil beaten for the light to cause the lamp to burn always. So there had to be a lot of olive trees with a lot of olive oil to burn those lamps day after day, night after night, night after night, throughout the years. But the olive oil also had a medicinal use as well as a cosmetic use. James uses the symbology of oil when it is used to heal the sick, referring to the sin-sick soul by God's sanctifying spirit in James 5.14. Notice, is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Olive oil is an excellent source of monosaturated fats and has essential anti-inflammatory properties. Some studies indicate that olive oil may even reduce the risk of cancer because of its positive impact on the overall cellular structure. It has also been shown to reduce the possibility of strokes and heart disease since it aids in proper blood flow. And in a 2013 study, it was suggested that the ingredients in extra virgin olive oil may also help protect the nervous system and could be useful for treating depression and anxiety as well as repairing liver damage. Many, many usages here. A further study shows how olive oil aids in the reduction even of Alzheimer's disease, disruption in insulin, and it may also alleviate stress and anxiety. So as you can see, God creates the olive tree. He creates the olive and the oil and places a very high value on it in all of its ways that it can be used, but especially for the light. In Psalm 104, the psalmist speaks of the oil as it is used even cosmetically for your skin. Notice 104, 14 and 15. He causes the grass to grow for the cattle and herb for the service of man that he may bring forth food out of the earth 
and wine that maketh glad the heart of man, and oil, notice, and oil, ladies, this is something you might be interested in, and oil to make his face shine, and bread which strengtheneth man's heart. Now all of that is, is true historically, but also symbolically we see the spiritual ramifications there. So when we look at the spiritual ramifications, we see that these are very, very impacting. The anointing of the prophets, priests, and kings was used by by God using the olive oil. So the anointing of prophets, priests, and kings uses the oil from these olive trees to anoint them. And we see this in Exodus 28:41. And thou shalt put them upon Aaron thy brother and his sons with him, and shall anoint them and consecrate them and sanctify them, so that once they are anointed, they may minister unto me in the priest's office. Psalm 89.20 I have found David my servant with my holy oil. So now he's calling the olive oil, holy oil, have I anointed him. All of this is spiritual significance, of course. In 1 Kings 39, 139 of 1 Kings, And Zadok the priest took an horn of oil out of the tabernacle and anointed Solomon, and they blew the trumpet, and all the people said, God save the king. So the oil symbolizes God's sanctifying spirit, which was used to ceremonially identify God's servants. Now, Jesus uses this symbology in his parable of the ten virgins. We see this in Matthew 25. In Matthew 25, Matthew records this parable in verse 1 and following. Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto ten virgins, which took their lamps and went forth to meet the bridegroom. And five of them were wise and five were foolish. They that were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them, but the wise took oil in their vessel with their lamps. So the believers are spoken of here as the virgins, but they're also likened to olive trees, since they are sanctified by the Spirit of God, and, and, and they have the words of life, the sanctifying words of life. They have the declaration, they have the power of light to be brought upon a world in darkness. And we see this connection in Revelation chapter 11, verse 3 and following. Notice this. And I will give power unto my two witnesses, that's the church, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and threescore days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. And if any man will hurt them, fire proceedeth out of their mouth and devoureth their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. Notice he's speaking of the church here and the power of the church, the power of the sanctified church because they have the olive oil, they have the sanctifying spirit and they go forth with the power of God because they are the anointed of God. Note again the power given to the church typified by the number two in the prophetic power of fire, which is always a reference to the word of God. And this is why we cannot ever be silent, ever, ever be silent. Now to ascend to the Mount of Olives is also very significant in both its historical setting and its spiritual significance. Because Jesus himself used this place to pray. Often he went there to pray and that's where he would also teach his disciples. Notice in Luke chapter 21, 37 and 8. And in the daytime he was teaching in the temple, and at night he went out and abode in the mount that is called the Mount of Olives, and all the people came early in the morning to him in the temple for to hear him. So Jesus was always at the Mount of Olivet. It was where he refreshed himself. It's where he contemplated God's will, where he contemplated his commission, where he contemplated God himself in prayer. And this is probably not the only reason why David would use a mountaintop to walk barefoot, pray and weep before God. Because you have to remember, David is a military general. Now they're, they're, on, they're in exile. 
They're worried that Absalom is going to hunt them. So he goes to the Mount Olivet, a mountaintop, because as a military general, he knew that an elevated place such as a mountain would be the perfect safety mechanism to spy out any armies that might be approaching and then to be able to fend from an elevated position against such a threat. And that's why Jerusalem, the city of God, the city of David, was situated upon a mountaintop. But this is also why God planted Eden in a mountaintop, according to Ezekiel chapter 28. And the reason is because mountains provide a military advantage for an enemy. And David knew that. The safety of a mountaintop encampment was also important because the people would be preoccupied with sorrow and prayer. And if they were preoccupied with sorrowing because of the exile, they're going to be more vulnerable to an attack. They're not going to be very, very much watching out. So this was a great strategy that David had for his people. So David is not only ascending the mountain barefoot while weeping, he and all of the men of his party have their heads covered. And this too is significant. It was an honor for women to have their heads covered, but never for the man. The apostle comments in 1 Corinthians 11.4, every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonoreth his head. So here we have David with his head covered, praying and worshiping God as a man who has been dishonored by the rebellious Absalom, his son. So two things stand out here. By covering his head, David is bringing shame to his own headship. He is admitting in the most dramatic fashion that he must own, finally he's realizing he must own this great shame and disgrace as a result of the heavy hand of God's chastisement. Moreover, not only did David dishonor his own head, but he has dishonored his spiritual head beginning as far back as when he lusted after a woman that was not lawfully his his wife, David's disgrace began. By sowing the wind, David was now in the midst of the whirlwind, in, in, a, in a, a place that he never would even have dreamed possible. And it all began at that very moment when David could not control his pride and his lust. So ascending to the mountain with his head covered is probably the first time we see David actually recognizing deeply, other than maybe in in Psalm 51, but historically recognizing so deeply the extent of the damage that he had done by his one act of rebellion. Now while he ascends the mount, he is also barefoot. No longer is he shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. He has been stripped of that peace. He is now in the whirlwind of God's chastisement. Paul makes mention of the importance of having our feet covered with the gospel as we go into battle for the kingdom's glory. Notice in Ephesians 6, 14 and 15, notice what he says, and this is for us. Stand therefore having your loins girt about with truth and having on the breastplate of righteousness and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Because there is no warrior on the face of the earth that goes into battle barefoot. David is now stripped of his capabilities, not only as a war warfaring priest, but also as king. And now he must walk before the Lord, weeping with his head covered, ascending the mountain barefooted. You think about that. What a humiliation. What a humiliating act that he is going through with all these people following. He was coming before God in barefoot repentance in order to show his humiliation 
In the same way that Moses was told to take your shoes off when you stand before God, David was ready to stand before God in great humiliation. Note how God explains the act of being barefoot as a humiliation in Isaiah 20, verse 4. So shall the king of Assyria lead away the Egyptian prisoners and the Ethiopian captives, young and old, naked and barefoot, even with their buttocks uncovered to the shame of Egypt. Now what is interesting about David's response is that we didn't see the depth of his repentance in this way until now. Nowhere do we read of such a public sorrowing over his sin with Bathsheba and the death of Uriah. But now David is actually exhibiting a public show of great humiliation. See what God is doing. He's bringing him to the depths of his chastisement. The pinnacle of what he had to go through because of his sin. And for David, this was a cleansing exercise. It seems as if David was only able to fully come to terms with the depth of his sin and the necessity of deeply repenting after everything was crumbling around him. And this is such a dramatic warning to to every one of us. We must remember that God takes sin very seriously. We should never think that we can just blow off a deep sorrowing whenever we sin, thinking that God will only wink at our sin and, and our transgressions and just give us a pass. Sin is a very, very great distress to God. He hates it. And He hates the wicked every day. And if He brought David, you think about this, just think about this, if He brought David to his knees in this way because of his sin, the King of Israel, the man after God's own heart, Will he not bring us to our knees if we fail to sincerely repent? It's something to take very seriously and very very much to think about it. The modern Christian, the modern Christian is often snared into thinking that a superficial sorrowing will please God. But as it has been said so many times before by the Puritans of old, too often our repentance needs repenting of since it is only half-hearted sorrowing. We must conclude then that in order for David to fully and completely be forgiven and cleansed, he had to bear the pain of God's chastisement in this public fashion. Let us never wait to fully sorrow and turn from our sins, otherwise we too may learn the misery of God's heavy hand of chastisement in the same way that David had to learn it. Now note that David was not alone in his lamentation. Notice verse 30. And David went up by the ascent of Mount Olivet and wept as he went, and had his head covered, and he went barefoot, and all the people that was with him, notice, everyone covered every man his head, and they went up, weeping as they went up. So David's not alone. He's not alone in this situation, nor was he alone in his suffering and his humiliation. Everyone is now affected. Everyone's in it, even though they had nothing to do with the sin that brought this chastisement about. And yet they're affected. Everyone was ascending to the mount. Everyone was weeping. Everyone had their head covered. Everyone was ascending to the mount, almost in the same way that the disciples ascended up to the mount in Luke chapter 22, verse 39. And he came out and went as he was wot to the Mount Olivet, and his disciples followed him. So isn't that interesting how Jesus goes up to the Mount Olives, his disciples follow him. David goes up to Mount Olives, and his disciples follow him. The patterns here, the parallels, are astounding. Everyone was sharing in David's sorrow in the same way as the saints 
We who are his disciples go up to Mount Olivet to share in Christ's sorrow over the conspiracy of the wicked. And herein is another practical lesson. Sin always has systemic ramifications. When you sin, it doesn't only affect you. It affects everybody. Adam's one sin affected the entire created construct and all of mankind, resulting in his utter depravity and destruction, driving mankind into the dust of the earth, licking the dust as the serpents licked the dust. David's sin affected his family, the priests of God, the worship of God, the nation of Israel. It even affected Joab and the Israeli army. It affected Amnon, Tamar, Bathsheba, Uriah, and Absalom. No one escaped from the effects of sin. Everyone was affected by the action of one man. And it all started with a disregard for the commandments of God. Now consider the gospel herein. When Christ took upon himself the sin of his people, he became the man of sorrows, much like David, much like Jeremiah. Jeremiah was the weeping prophet, the son of God. Well, the beloved son of God, he was at the same time, Christ was at the same time exiled at his incarnation for the redemption of his people. Just think about the parallels here. As a result of one man's sin, Adam, Christ, and his elect are conspired against by the reprobate, by the wicked of the world, while on the earth we find Christ ascending to the Mount of Olives where he would find peace and the anointing spirit of God for strength. That's what David did. David went up there. He wanted to be anointed once again. He wanted to be atoned for as well by the spirit of God. He wanted to go there to worship God to find strength for the days ahead with his head symbolically covered as a result of his humiliation. Christ symbolically goes barefoot to the Mount together with his disciples, which of course, of the organic church of the living God, to pray for his people and for the returning of his kingdom. This is what David is doing. It's very much as what Christ did when he was walking on the earth. And so what we see here is actually a contest between David and Absalom, but really between Adam and Christ, seeking to reign in Jerusalem. Adam wanted to reign in Jerusalem. Absalom wanted to reign in Jerusalem. Adam wants the kingdom. Absalom wants the kingdom. The parallels are very stark. Adam wants to reign the world. Absalom wants to reign the world. They want to rule. They want to be God. From the beginning, it was always a contest between righteousness and unrighteousness, lawfulness and lawlessness, light and darkness and good and evil. Because reprobate man only desires evil and reprobate man is always attacking the true God. And so we should never be amazed. We should never be discouraged. We should never be fearful when we see the wicked rise up to put the church in exile. And it's only at that time when the righteous are to be bold as lions, delivering the king's message of wrath and redemption. That's the message, wrath or redemption. Now let me take a pause and bring this connection together from our New Testament reading. What is the connection... Or, let me put it this way, what is the harmony between lions, doves, and serpents? Lions, doves, and serpents. Because the Lord Jesus Christ is very clear. Be harmless as doves. Wise as serpents, harmless as doves. Well, when we are in battle, we are to be lions. We are to be the lions of God going forth to battle 
with the man of war, the Nazarite priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. In our warfare, we are to be cunning as serpents, the serpents of the earth, gathering intel, strategizing, planning, collaborating with the saints, gathering intel. That's what David did. The reference to doves, the common usage is that we are to discount all of these battle characteristics. You know, we're just to be little little pigeons, little doves. But that is not accurate. A dove is commonly known as a bird of peace. That is accurate. We are to be peacemakers between God and man by the preaching of the gospel. But according to God's law of warfare, we are to declare peace first to the rebels. We are the doves of God. We declare peace first to the rebels. Now, if they refuse, then we are to revert to our gospel battle tactics. What is really fascinating when I studied doves is that doves were always used to carry messages from the kings, the ancient kings, from his dominion to other dominions. They were the message bearers. They were the ones that would carry the messages. So so historically, doves were used to carry messages from the king. When Jesus told the disciples that they were to be as doves, he was alluding to their task of bringing the message of his gospel, which is the gospel of his sovereign majesty and kingdom reign. That's why we're doves. We bring the message of the gospel. Not that that we're going to be pigeons on a stick somewhere over a flame. So we need to understand what the scriptures are teaching. And so we are to be cunning, peace-loving, but battle-ready. That's what the word is about. David goes to the mount to humble himself and to worship God. And I believe that if he didn't really humble himself, he never would have regained the kingdom. Because only, only through pride cometh destruction, but through humiliation, God is well pleased with it. Now it is interesting that as he goes to worship God, in verse 31, it makes it very clear that David was worshiping God while he was on the mountain. This was something very important. In his exile, you think about it, the enemy is coming into the flood and he goes and he worships God. First priority, humbles himself, he goes into the place where he would worship. Nowhere does it hint anywhere that David was complaining, arguing, or even asking for the kingdom to be returned to him. I find it fascinating that nowhere does it say that David was fearful of his life. What he said was, if God kills me, so be it. If God restores me to the kingdom, so be it. At least I'll know where I stand. He wasn't afraid. He was just doing what he knew he had to do. He was simply worshiping God, whom he had complete trust in. And this should be our response when things go horribly wrong or whenever the wicked seem, and I stress seem, to be in power. We are to go before God and worship Him first before we execute any strategy or face the enemy. That's why we come together to pray together. And that is where the strength comes from. Not only strength, but comfort and clarity as to what to do next. It is the only place where we can get help. We can't get help from anywhere but from God first and foremost. While on the mount... Then news comes to David concerning additional disturbing details concerning the conspiracy. Notice verse 31. This was just another blow to poor David. And one told David, saying, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. Now, if David wasn't discouraged 
before that, now he's really discouraged. He doesn't show it. In fact, he doesn't show it at all. Ahithophel was originally one of David's trusted counselors. In fact, he was a man, you think about this man, he was held in such high regard that the scripture says that if you were to ask for his advice, if you were to inquire of Ithophel's counsel, it was as if you were asking God directly. Think about the testimony of this man. We read this in 2 Samuel 16, 23. And the counsel of Ahithophel, which he counseled in those days, was as if a man had inquired at the oracle of God, so was all the counsel of Ahithophel, both with David and with Absalom. But now, Ahithophel is confederating with Absalom, the illegitimate rebel, against the legitimate rightful king. And, and this is like unbelievable. But it serves as another warning that we can never really know a man until he is tried and tested throughout many difficult seasons of life with all of its temptations. And obviously, Ahithophel was tempted by whatever Absalom was telling him. But this warning that you shouldn't trust anyone, even if they seem to be God's man, this warning is especially true for those who hold public office. So how many times... How many times have you heard a political candidate or a minister of the gospel for that matter tout their deep Christian faith only to confederate with the ungodly or promote things that are outside of the will of God? We are witnessing that today in most every area of government, even in our own community. These are the Ahithophels of the world. They're liars, they're betrayers, they're hypocrites, they're miscreants. All of them are under the wrath of God and they're yet clueless of who they have confederated with. And they need to be dealt with in the same way as David deals with them. You think about this. David doesn't say, oh no, oh no, I can't believe it. My best buddy, my counselor, oh, I'm destroyed. I guess we're going to be destroyed. His response is swift and imprecatory. Notice what he says. Oh Yahweh, Yahweh, I pray thee, turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. Here's a man... You, you have to love this man of resolve, tenacity. A betrayer is a betrayer, a liar is a liar, a hypocrite, a miscreant. Let the man's counsel turn into foolishness. Now David seems to record some of these difficult situations in his Psalms, probably during the time when he was worshiping God on Mount Olivet. Notice in Psalm 3 verse 1. A psalm of David, notice, when he fled from Absalom, his son. Notice what he says. Lord, how are they increased that trouble me? Many are they that rise up against me. In Psalm 41, 7 and following, and then Psalm 55, 12 and following. All they that hate me whisper together against me. Against me do they devise my hurt. An evil disease say they cleaveth fast unto him, and now that he lieth. He shall rise up no more. Yea, mine own familiar friend in whom I trusted, which should eat of my bread, hath lifted up his heel against me. But thou, O Lord, be merciful unto me and raise me up that I may requite them. For it was not an enemy that reproached me, then I could have borne it. Neither was it he that hated me that did magnify himself against me. Then I would have hid myself from him. But it was thou, a man, mine equal, my guide and mine acquaintance. We took sweet counsel together. Ahithophel. 
and walked unto the house of God in company. Let death seize upon them and let them go down quick into hell for wickedness is in their dwellings and among them, as for me, I will call upon God and the Lord shall save me. Here's a man of extreme faith. He understood clearly the difference between right and wrong. He understood clearly the difference between light and darkness, good and evil. He understood who are the betrayers, who are the hypocrites, who are the miscreants, who are those who are promoting evil. He could see it as clearly as he could see the the sun in the sky. And so while David worships, another messenger, and you see how this all works. Ahithophel is a conspirator. That's a drag. But then God says, don't worry, I'm going to send you now an encouragement. You responded properly. Here's Hushai, the archite. So while he worships, another messenger comes to meet him. Hushai, verse 32. And it came to pass that when David was come to the top of the mount where he worshiped God, behold, Hushai, the archite, came to meet him with his coat rent and earth upon his head. Now, this man apparently was a friend of David and of the company of them that wept. It seems that he was not of one of David's warriors. He might have even been one of the priests, since David believes that he might be a burden rather than an asset if a battle between David and Absalom were to come to pass. Now, notice Hushai's request is not recorded in detail, but it's obvious that he wanted to continue with David in his exile. Now, hearing this and surmising that Absalom might hunt David to finally destroy him once and for all, from trying to regain the throne, David tells Hushai that he cannot continue with him, but, as the cunning general that he was, there might be another use for the man. Hushai can be David's spy. David says this, If thou passeth on with me, then thou shalt be a burden unto me. But, if thou return to the city and say unto Absalom, deceive the man, in other words, I will be thy servant, O king. Absalom would have loved that, calling him king. As I have been thy father's servant hitherto, so will I now be also thy servant. Then mayest thou for me defeat the counsel of Ahithophel. That was the plan. Be his counselor so that we might turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. And hast thou not there with thee Zadok and Abathar the priests? Therefore it shall be that what thing soever thou shalt hear out of the king's house, that thou shalt tell it to Zadok and Abathar the priests. Behold, they have... There with them their two sons, and by them ye shall send unto me everything that ye hear. He's gathering intel. He's got a spy in the camp. David already had Zadok and his sons in place as spies, but this was a brilliant move on David's part, since he knew that Absalom probably wouldn't hurt the priests. Because if Absalom did what Saul did by killing the priests, he would probably lose the support of those following him. Israel, of course, at this time regarded the priesthood very highly, and they were needed to make the sacrifice for the people. If they didn't make the sacrifices for the people, how would there be any atonements? The kingdom couldn't any longer function properly without the temple intact, which means that the Ark of the Covenant had to be placed in the Holy of Holies. And without the priesthood, the entire kingdom would fail. No one would be atoned. Everyone would be without forgiveness of sins. So Absalom needed Zadok. He needed the priests. He needed the temple and the Ark of the Covenant to be intact. And that's why these were the perfect, perfect spies for King David. 
As far as David knew, these men would be protected simply as a result of their office. If Absalom wanted to rule from any seemingly legitimate platform, the temple duties had to be kept intact. And David knew that. And so he sends Hushai back to Absalom to begin his spycraft in coordination with Zadok and his sons. As a faithful man of God, Hushai faithfully obeys and sets in motion David's plan. Verse 37. So Hushai, David's friend, came into the city and Absalom came into Jerusalem. So now the situation is set for David's intelligence gathering. This also provides a lesson for us who are engaged in the culture war. Before we fight, we gather intel. Once we have sufficient intellectual ammunition to launch upon the community, then and only then do we engage. David understood that. And he followed that rule brilliantly. Next, we will learn of just how far Absalom is willing to go to humiliate his father, the legitimate king of Israel, when we return to our exposition of the second book of Samuel. And this we shall do, God helping us unto the praise of the glory of his grace. Amen.